Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, join me in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. We're going to break into this text, and as we do, Paul is in Athens, and he's been sharing the gospel in the marketplace. He's encountered philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoics who bring him before the Areopagus or the city council to further explain the gospel message. They, they seem simultaneously curious and offended. You're crazy, but we want to know more. So they accuse Paul of introducing foreign gods, but they also want to know more about his gospel. So he's got an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people who are intelligent and yet biblically ignorant. To this point, with the exception of Paul's very brief sermon in Lystra, we've seen Paul preach Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. But today he takes a different approach because his listeners have a different starting point. They don't know of God's promises to Israel. So instead we see him seeking to engage people sort of where they are, who, little, who know very little about the Bible, but they seem willing to listen to what he'll have to say. And so I believe for us in 2022 that we can learn a lot from Paul in this context because we too function in largely a biblically ignorant culture. I know that, that you woke up this morning and it said Virginia's in the Bible Belt and that Liberty University is in Lynchburg. But not with that with notwithstanding, many people just don't know much about the Bible, if anything, anymore. And so I think we can learn from Paul in the remaining verses of Acts 17, starting in verse 22. Uh, we're going to read the Word of God sort of in chunks today and consider uh, what it means for us. But before we do, uh, would you pray with me? God, help us in the hearing of your word to be changed by it. God, help us to be shaped by it. Holy Spirit, we we ask that you would take the word that you have authored and that you would get out of our lives everything you intend for us today. You're sovereign, you're good, you knew we would be here, that we would have our Bibles open and that we would have the opportunity to consider Christ and how to make him known. God, we want to be a church that makes Jesus known in this valley and around the world. Help us to be about that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 22. We'll just consider 22 and 23 to get started, okay? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Two things that I, or one thing that I want you to get from this text in verse 22 and 23 is that we can be tactful and take the opportunity. Be tactful and take the opportunity. Now, let me emphasize, being tactful doesn't mean not being truthful. Everything Paul says in 22 and 23 is is truth, it's accurate, it's just how he says it is sensitive to the situation. Paul's been asked to defend and clarify his teaching, but he begins 
by observing his listeners. Do you see that? He perceives, and the verb is in the tense that he keeps on perceiving, that they are in every way very religious. They are sincere in their superstition. Of course, sincerity, sincere belief in a million non-gods doesn't do us very much good, does it? It doesn't save anybody. But people are often proud of their sincerity, aren't they? I really believe it, and so God must accept it because I'm sincere. And we, we know that that's not accurate. But Paul doesn't open with, repent, you bunch of idolaters. Right? Like, we want to hear from you. Repent, you bunch of idolaters. Now, he's going to get there in verse 30. But before he gets there, he wants, he wants to give an opportunity before they're emotionally offended and give that initial default response to actually hear what he has to say. So, so he opens with, instead of, you're worshiping wrongly, you bunch of crazy people, he says, I see you being religious. Then in verse 23, he says he observes their objects of worship. Now what are they worshiping? He's already told us in the, in the prior text, they're worshiping idols. This is incredible tact on Paul's part as, as a Jew who hated idolatry he calls them not idols, but objects of worship. They are graven images. They're idols. They, they worship these things, and it's foolish, and it's ignorant, and it ultimately brings God's judgment. But Paul holds back long enough to give them an opportunity to process what he's going to say. Paul also turns towards presenting the gospel by noting that he had found, do you see that in verse 23? Eureka is the Greek word. Like It's, it's a discovery I found something good here in the middle of all this idolatry. I found an altar designated to the worship of the unknown God. Paul sees that and he's like, there's a tiny little window of opportunity. These big heads, these intellectuals, these philosophers, they think they know everything. But even in their knowledge, even in what they think they know, they've left open a tiny little window that maybe they've missed out on a God. Maybe they've left a God out. And what does Paul do? He takes this little window and he turns it into a wide open door. He just bangs the door down. He's like, I proclaim to you the God that you don't know. And by the way, the God that you don't know isn't just a God, that, a God that you don't know. He's the only one and true God. What you thought was a sliver of possibility that you had overlooked some tiny little non-God in a corner of the universe. Yeah, actually, he's the only God who is. Verse 24 and 25. The God. Can you imagine if you're in Athens? And you got all these little system of gods, one for the sun, one for the moon, one for the stars, one for the grass, one for the fire and wind and trees, 73,000 idols in Athens. All right, and he's like, well, there's one you overlooked, this little unknown God. Okay, well, tell us about the unknown God, please. Are you there? All right, I'm ready. Verse 24. The God... Who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord, master, ruler, king of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Literally by hand. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. 
you groping around, worshiping these little non-gods, trying to appease them to make them feel good about you so that you get on their good side. They don't even exist. And God, he doesn't need that from you. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, your very existence is owing to the God that you didn't know, that you thought was a nothing burger. Yeah, he's over all this stuff. So how, what can we learn from Paul in this context? I think we can learn this, to begin in the beginning. When people are bib- biblically ignorant, begin in the beginning and establish that God is creator of all things. There is one God who made everything. That's a game changer on your worldview world right there. In many places around the world, that's like, what? Yeah, one God made it all. Speeches before the Areopagus typically lasted one or two hours. And we're going to be able to read Paul's sermon in about two minutes, which tells us that Luke is likely recording a, a synopsis or an outline of his overall speech. And when Paul here engages people who need to know what they don't know, he begins in the beginning. The God who is unknown to them is the God who made the world and everything in it. Literally, he made all the things. I love that. We say that, right? All the things. God made all the things. Therefore, he is Lord of heaven and earth. And the words heaven and earth are, are what is called a merism. All right, we're going we're gonna to geek out on grammar for a second, or in the English language. What in the world is a merism? A merism is when you use a part for the whole, right? When you say, uh, when you, say you know, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. Well, you don't mean just the kit and the caboodle. You mean everything. God made the heavens and the earth, and he's therefore Lord of everything that exists. He is Lord of all. His rule and his reign are over everything that exists. Colossians 1.16 tells us, visible and invisible. Any power, any throne, any dominion, any angel, anything that exists, God made it. Paul's sermon starts where the Bible starts. God created all and is therefore Lord over all. Y'all still, still here? After establishing that nothing exists apart from God who created, he then transitions to the absurdity of thinking that God's presence can be restricted to a temple that is made by man or made by hands. Paul is simultaneously countering both the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers. First, God does not equal creation contrary to the Stoics. God is not a tree. God is not a rock. He is everywhere present, but he is not equal to his creation. He is over and transcendent and greater than his creation. And yet, he is present with and involved with his creation, contra the Epicureans. He he wants to be known. He wants us to enjoy him and to be fulfilled by him. So God. God, who created all, cannot be domesticated by man, and yet he desires to be near to man. Isn't that amazing? That God would consider us? That he would desire to be near us? Creation itself testifies to the creator's existence, leaving everyone without an excuse for their sinful rebellion, Romans chapter 1 tells us. Yet, apart from God's transforming grace, In the hearing of the gospel, we lack, because of our sin, the spiritual eyes to behold our creator. Whoever he is, he's infinitely greater 
than what any temple could contain, and he must show himself to us. This God, verse 25, who created all, therefore needs nothing from his creation. Did you know you get to serve God? You ever feel like, man, I got I to gotta serve God? The pastor mentioned generous giving again. I got to give to God. No, you don't. I mean, you don't have to. And, and if you have that attitude about service, if you have that attitude about giving, the warning lights ought to be popping on in your life, right? Because you get to do these things. God, who needs nothing from you, invites you into his worship, invites you into who he is and what he's doing in the world. I get to be a part of the family of God. I get to be generous. I get to serve. I get to be a blessing to my family. Where in the world do I get this opportunity from God who gives me life and breath and everything? I have nothing apart from him. God is life. He is sheer existence. His name is I am, Exodus 3.14. Nothing that now exists or has ever existed could have ever existed without God. And nothing that now exists, including Paul or the Athenians or you or me, could continue to exist without God. It is God who gives life. It is God who gives breath and everything. And Paul says to the Athenians, your life, now remember, try to put yourself in their place. Mentally, all these gods everywhere, all this philosophy and mumbo jumbo and look at how smart we are and what's the newest thought of the day. And here's what Paul says to them. I'm going to translate it, put it in what I call the DJPV version. Your life and your next breath and any shred of intelligence or achievement you possess is a gift from the God you do not know. And the implied question that Paul's going to answer next is this. But Paul, why, why are there so many different peoples then? Why are there so many different cultures and, and gods and things that are out there? People with new ideas every day all over the planet. How do we make sense of that? If there's, there's one God, why does it seem like there's not yet one people? Good question. Verse 26 down through 28. And he, who's he? The Lord God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are His offspring. Paul answers the implied questioning about the peoples of the earth by stating for us God's purpose for creating humanity in the first place. Why did God make people? God is, but, but why in the world did he make us? In his image. So if we're sharing the gospel with someone who has very little biblical knowledge, we start with the fact that God created, and then we do what Paul did. We move to God's purpose for humanity. Sounds like a pretty good strategy, right? First, we've got to establish that God is, and then we realize that we are. Well, what are we here? What did God want to do with us? And, and Paul gives us two big ideas, two big purposes. People exist to fill the earth and to seek God. Fill the earth and seek God. 
Verse 26, Paul moves from discussing God as creator to his purposes for people. Despite the diversity of perspectives among the peoples of the earth, God made from one man. Do you see that? God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God wants people to subdue all the inhabitable lands of the earth. In other words, there were not multiple gods creating different types of people accountable to differing gods in differing ways. All the people are accountable to one God on God's terms. It's another big important idea as we think about the world. All peoples, not just some peoples, not just Jews, not just Christians, everybody that exists on the planet in the history of the planet owes their existence to the one God who created the one man, Adam, from whom he formed Eve and through whom every human came thereafter. That is not what our kids are learning in biology at school. They are learning that people evolved from all sorts of things and came from all sorts of different places and the people kind of emerged in different ways. That is not, you cannot align that belief with what the Bible says about how humanity came to be. Does that make sense? This means we have to reject an evolutionary theory of the development of human beings. It further requires that we reject all arguments for racial superiority because there is one race. If people emerged in different places, in different ways, and at different times, then sure, maybe you can make the argument that this race is is better than that race, or that color of skin is better than that color of skin. But you can't make that argument if you have a biblical worldview. We are one people made by one God. There's one race, the human race, and we come from one ancestor, and his name is Adam, and he was, who was created by the one God who made everything full stop. And God's purpose for people was that we would live, do you see that? Reside, dwell, permanently inhabit, where? He made us to live on the earth, which is interesting to me, because so often as Christians, we're like, I just can't wait to go to heaven, I can't wait to die and go to heaven, I can't wait to die and go to heaven and escape this planet, and I kind of get it, but really the culmination that we're trained to look for in the Bible is not when we die and take our last breath, it's when Christ returns and our bodies are raised to inhabit and dwell upon the earth that he makes new. We were made for a terrestrial existence. We glorify God in our bodies. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. That's the hope of Scripture. I can't wait till my king returns. We were made to dwell on all the face of the earth. Paul is quoting from Genesis 1, 28 and 29 loosely where, he command, where God commands humanity to what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. Verse 28 of, Acts, of Genesis 1. And then in verse 29, what does God promise to do? He promises to provide people with the food that is needed to live in those places. He says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on, listen to it, the face of all the earth. Paul's just, he's not starting in Israel, he's starting in Genesis. All right, you don't know who God is. There is a God and he made peoples. I'm going to take you back to his purposes for people. Where do we find that? Genesis chapter 1, fill the earth, subdue it. 
Rule over it, care for it, and enjoy God's creation. Why are you here? To enjoy God's creation and to enjoy God as you do. Did you know God wants you to have fun? I took my son to the Hokies game yesterday, and surprisingly they won. It was beautiful. It was in the 70s. The sun was shining. We had fun. We were glorifying God as father and son together, taking in some culture. We had fun. You say, oh, the Christianity's boring and dull and we can't ever have fun. Where is that? Have fun. I love to mow my lawn. Except after my dad puts down the third application of fertilizer in three weeks. And then I have a forest every two days. Fill the earth, fill the whole planet, and, and have fun. Subdue it, rule over it. We, we, the theologians call us like God's vice regents. Like he's over all, but he wants us, as we image him, to rule like he would rule. To take care of his creation and use it for good. And then in, Paul answers uh, another implied question after talking about the first purpose, that we would fill the earth. He he answers the question that goes something like this. Well, well, what about the rise and fall of all these different people then? If, if God made one people from one man. So Paul explains that God was not taken by surprise by the existence of or the rise and the fall of other nations. Rather, as, as Piper puts it, Paul says this self-sufficient God created all the various nations from one man. And God himself determines how long a nation survives and how far its borders extend. In other words, all of world history, God knew about it. The rise and fall of nations, the, the changing of borders and territories. And in 27, we learn that God's sovereign activity in superintending the rise and fall of nations and establishing their borders was done, why? With the aim that people should seek God and find him. God wants people to find him. Piper is again helpful. God's aim is to rule in a way that will set men searching for the meaning of life outside of the created world. He wants people to get to the end of their quest and realize, I haven't found anything that satisfies my soul. I look for it in money. I look for it in sex. I look for it in fame. I look for it in my career. I look for it in academics. I look for it in beauty. I look for it in cosmetics. I look for it every single place I could. I look for it in Athens in 73,000 different idols, and they still couldn't satisfy. And the way I know they didn't satisfy is because you still had a little altar to an unknown God with the hope that there might be a God out there somewhere who could really satisfy the longings of my heart. And guess what? He exists. And he is good. And he created a world that, that men would, would search for him. The problem, however, is our sin. In Romans 3.11, Paul says, no one understands. No one seeks God. In other words, they think they're seeking God, but they, they're actually seeking just their own gods. The word find in verse 27 of Acts 17 means to, to grope about as one who is blind or in total darkness. So God wants us to seek him if perhaps they, they might find him, but they, they don't find him because of their sin. Sin leaves us in the dark. 
groping about, groping about blindly following idols of our own invention. But here's some good news, church. Despite our inability to see God, God is not distant. He may seem hopelessly out of reach. Soul satisfaction might seem like it will never be found. But look at the end of verse 27. Yet, despite the groping, despite the futility of the search, yet... He is actually not far from each one of us. That's good news. He's not far away. Does God feel distant to you this morning? He's not far. Yes, the God Paul has described is greater than we could ever conceive of, but He is not distant. And in verse 28, Paul uses some poets that the Athenians were familiar with to suggest that the idea of a God who is near should not be unexpected to them. Paul knew his culture. He knew the songs that were playing on the radio. He knew the movies that had been debuting at the movie, movie theater, not so that he could fill his mind with bad thoughts and sensuality and all that stuff, but so that he could engage the culture. Do you understand the difference? Right? We we got to guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. This is not permission to go watch R-rated movies or, or anything like that. But he is, he's in touch with their authors and their poets so that he can bring that in and say, look, even here you've said something that begins to get at the truth of what God is like and who he is. First he quotes Epimenides of Crete. Writing in the 6th century B.C., he said, In him we live and move and exist. Now, Epimenides was talking about Zeus. But he captures well our dependence upon a divine being for our existence. So Paul is basically saying, hey, wh what you thought Zeus was up to? No, that's what the God of the universe is up to. Everything we do, live, move, and exist depends not on Zeus, but upon God, the God who is present and personal, the God, as Peterson says, who can be known and understood and trusted. Then, Paul quotes from another poet, Erastus of Cilicia, who says, we are his offspring. Erastus was speaking of Zeus, but Paul applies this to God in whose image we are made. Here's Paul's point. Those who are made by God to seek after God, find their joy and fulfillment in pursuing and belonging to God, their creator. Our sin severed our connection with God the Father. It perverted our seeking, but praise God, the solution is found in the gospel, which illumines our otherwise futile quest, revealing God who seeks those who will turn from sin and follow his Son. And now, in closing, we'll read verse 29 through 33. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. There it is, right? Paul's like, you bunch of idolaters. Right? He, he finally said it. He still said it in a very polite way. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people... How many people? All people. Where? Everywhere to repent. Who needs to repent and trust in God? All people everywhere. That's the scope of our mission. All people everywhere. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day. 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. You say, Pastor, what can we get from this? Here here it is. Urge people, after you've presented God as creator and you've declared his purposes for humanity and you've explained that sin messes up the search, what do we do? We urge people to renounce idolatry, repent of sin, and be reconciled to God who is near through the resurrected Christ, lest they face Jesus as judge when he returns. Verse 29, Paul says it would be folly to think that we can form the creator from the raw materials of his creation We come from the art and imagination of God. God does not come from the art and imagination of man. God made us. We didn't make up God. And while the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers would have agreed that fashioning material idols was a foolish quest, they were nevertheless idolaters in their minds, forming thoughts about the divine in ignorance, often missing the divine truth entirely, And at other times, getting close, but ascribing it to a non-God rather than to to the real God. Idolatry, whether it involves the futile attempt to create physical representations of the divine or the creation of mental gods to worship, idolatry must be renounced as rebellion against God, who cannot be created in our sinful ignorance but who can be encountered in love and in power when we repent of our idolatry and we run to His Son, Jesus Christ. Church, this is possible in Athens. And it's possible in Roanoke. Because the times of ignorance are over now that Jesus has come and been proclaimed. Do you see that in verse 30? The times of ignorance God overlooked. When Paul says that God overlooked the times of ignorance, it doesn't mean that people who didn't hear of Jesus weren't accountable for their sin, right? We know this, as Piper says, because in Romans 2.12, uh, Paul says, All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. In other words, judgment will be according to the knowledge at a person's disposal. But all people in the world have enough knowledge of God in nature and in their own conscience, which they don't live up to, that they will be judged on account of it. God does not ignore sin during the times of ignorance. Instead of tending to it, however, He looked the other way and let it be. This is confirmed for us in Acts 14, 16, by Paul's words there, he's preaching to the unbelievers at Lystra, and he says, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. But now, church, Jesus has come. He has conquered the grave, and he has been risen, and God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe on him. Which kind of people? People who practice idolatry and philosophers. People who have earned PhDs and plumbers. Rocket scientists and real estate agents. No matter where you are on the social spectrum, God says it's time to repent. 
Repentance is simply turning away from yourself, turning away from your sin. Stop worshiping self and start worshiping God, your maker. Stop groping around in darkness and start following God in the light. And you can do this because of one man. God made humanity from one man, humanity sinned, and we messed it up. But there's another man that God sent to take our place. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death. He conquered the grave on the third day, and he's returning as judge. And those who've been saved by him will rejoice forever, and those who have not will weep forever. So God says it is time to run away from idolatry, run to Christ, and be rescued from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. In verses 32 and 33, we see the response to the message, right? Some mocked. Some said, we want to hear more. And some believed. Including a leading man and woman from the Areopagus. From the very council that was putting him, in a sense, on trial, they believed. Church, this is what happens when we present the gospel. It happens everywhere you go. And I think what happens is we put all this pressure on ourselves to say everything right and get it right. And we're like, if they don't trust in Jesus, that somehow I failed. No, you didn't fail. It's in the hands of a sovereign God. You share, people respond. Some are going to mock. Some are going to say, I didn't quite get it. Tell me more. And some are going to follow you in faith as you follow King Jesus. Those are the options. Do you know this great saving God who is near North Roanoke? If you're here today and you don't yet know this God who is near, I want to urge you, as Paul urged the Athenians, name your idols, renounce your idols, repent, and run to Jesus. Because God has fixed a day in which He will judge. And when that day comes, is too late. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for Paul and his faithfulness in Athens. We pray you would find us faithful in Roanoke. God, we pray that you would move as you have already moved. God, that you would bring more to saving faith in Christ, perhaps today, and if not today, in the days to come. And we pray, God, you would use us in that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.